here at ECC. We're finishing up our relationship series. We had our panel discussion up here. Uh, we had a message on thinking about singleness from a Christian perspective last week. And John tonight is speaking on uh, thinking about cohabitation. This is a specially requested topic from a Connection student. And I have to say, I think it's something really important for us to think about and talk about together. I've had conversations with family members who decide they're going to move in with their boyfriend or girlfriend. I've had this conversation with Connection students who made that choice as well. Um, knowing how to engage people who are thinking about that well as followers of Christ is really important. And I trust that John has some stuff uh, that would be really interesting for us to think about tonight in our time together. So John, I want you to come on board as we welcome you with applause.
stepping into marriage before marriage, I would say, you know, marriage, the intimacy of living together is a lot more than just sleeping together. There is an intimacy you're entering into when you live together. It is very different than when you're dating. I don't care how much you think you know each other. There is an intimacy, an availability, uh, a way of relating that you're going to now have that is different, even if sex isn't a part of this. The second thing I'll say is that if you're choosing to move in together but not have sex, it's because you believe it's morally wrong to have sex before marriage. So one of the things I'll ask them to consider is the fact, if you believe it's wrong for you, then I think you ought to ask the question about are you encouraging this in others? Because in this lifestyle that you're now entering into, in a culture where it's common to live together, nobody's watching you thinking you're not sleeping together. No one's doing that. Matter of fact, even the ones you tell are probably assuming you're not telling the truth. They're assuming you are sleeping together if you're living together. And in a culture where that is the norm, where that is common, you're actually reinforcing that. You're actually sending a message that is good. And if you believe it's wrong for you, then I think you need to ask questions about is it good to encourage others? Uh, and I think this lifestyle does encourage that. But all that aside, so, so the two reasons that come up most often in the finances, one of those, again, I'd say, okay, you save money. So a question I've asked couples many times is, so, so tell me why this is just about, you know, we're, we're going to get married, we're sure, we're ready to make that commitment, it's just a matter of, it's not the right time for wedding yet, and for finances, we're saving up. And I'll often say, you know, if that's the issue, then why don't you just get married? Why don't you go out and get your license and do premarital counseling and get married? And then go move in together. And I don't care if you're not going to celebrate the wedding until later. Why don't you just get married and move in together if that's what you're going to do? If that is the only issue, then okay, save your money. But generally, as I have this conversation with people, what I find is really not the issue. It really comes back to that other issue again. There's kind of a, I want the intimacy, but I'm not quite ready to go that far away. Not quite ready for the commitment of marriage. So I come back to that issue again, again and again. And to that one, I want to say, first of all, it's just not true that this is going to help keep you away from divorce. It's simply not true. You don't even have to listen to my opinion on it. A lot of research has been done on cohabitation and the effect that it has. Uh, I would challenge you to go find research that says that it helps people avoid divorce. The people who live together before marriage are less likely to get divorced. You just won't find that. What you will find is maybe some who say it doesn't make much difference. What you will also find is the bulk of research done on it that says it actually will harm your chances of not being divorced. That you are more likely to experience marital instability, less satisfaction in your marriage. That is the common result of research that is done on people who cohabit before marriage. That it actually does harm to their long-term chances of it's just practically, I think it's a morally wrong choice, it's also just practically a bad choice. It just doesn't accomplish the thing that people think it's going to accomplish. 2009, Dr. Melina Rhodes, a researcher at the University of Denver, uh, her conclusion at the end of a huge study that she did on this, lower marriage satisfaction, more potential divorce, was clearly her results at the end. And here's what she said, her, why she thought it was true, uh, her conclusion. She believed that people entered into these marriages kind of with this idea of, well, this is just practice. This is kind of a test run. Because they entered, they were tended to be a little less selective. They tended to worry a little less about it because they thought they had an escape route, right? 
So they worried a little less. But once they entered into that relationship, they were in it. They wanted it to work out. They had made an investment. They had been vulnerable. They had taken risks for each other. And now we want that relationship to work. So she believes that a lot of relationships end up going to marriage that probably would have fizzled out had they not been living together. Because they probably weren't ready to go to that place. But because they already did, within the back of their mind, this kind of escape plan. But they found out once they were in it, that escape plan isn't really such a great escape plan. It still costs you. You're still vulnerable. There's still pain that comes from breaking off that relationship. It still hurts you. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about my, uh, this candidate and as a pastor for different jobs and churches. And one of the things that I found was often true when I was candidating different churches, they have this huge process as a pastor you go through when you go to a church. Churches have search committees and you know, you'll send them resumes, and they'll generally send you back these huge questionnaires that you fill out. It just takes forever to fill them out for church you're not sure you're interested in. And then they'll sort through all the questionnaires, and then they'll pick some of you that they'll call and do interviews with. And so then you do these interviews often with multiple people over the phone. And then after you've done the interviews with them, sometimes what they'll do is someone will fly out to where you are to meet with you personally from the search committee, or you'll fly out to the church and meet for a day with some people. And you'll do that. And then, and then they'll decide, okay, now if you're really one of the people we've narrowed down to, some will narrow down to a couple, some will narrow down to just one. Out of all these resumes they've looked at, they'll come down to somebody and they'll say, now we want you to come candidate at the church. And that usually means come out to the church, stay several days, meet with all these groups of elders and pastoral staff, and in my case, as a youth pastor, so parents and teens, and sometimes they'll have you teach different groups or preach in church and all those things. But what I learned as I was in that process, and the last time I was in it many years ago, I was at a place where I could be pretty selective. I wasn't in a big rush. So we went to probably more of those than any human being should. And when you get to that final stage, what I found was people start feeding you the answers. They ask you questions in groups, and then they start telling you, in a sense, what they want you to answer. They're almost begging you to give the answer they want because they've invested so much in you. They want it to work out so well, and they've narrowed it down where if you don't take this job, we've got to start over again. If you're not the guy we really want, this is costly because we've invested a lot. We want it to work out, and I would often be at that place. I would sometimes, an hour into the church, go, yeah, not what I thought. This is not what I want. But I invested a lot. i got to start this process over again, too. I want it to work. I want to find some reason to stay in this thing. And what she's kind of saying is we find the same thing with couples that go out. They get so invested in it, they want it to work. They went in it a little uh, not ready yet for that level of commitment. But once they're in it, they found out we're in that level of commitment. And, and now we're in it and we're not really sure we were ready or we were ready to enter into it. Or even that this was the right person to enter into it. Another 2003 study, three researchers from Penn State, their conclusion. Even after controlling for demographic variables that are associated with cohabitation, premarital cohabitation remains significantly related to marital unhappiness, marital conflict, and divorce. So again, the people who want to argue, this is just simply makes sense. I talk to couples whose parents are actually pressuring them to move in together before they get married. They want them to do it. I never ran into that years ago. I've run into that a few times in recent years, where parents are pushing their kids to do that with the belief 
it will better prepare them to be married. And I simply are show me evidence of that. I simply don't think it exists. It's not true. It doesn't prepare you for that. Because there's a few problems with it, I would say. It's kind of like we're, we're telling people you're going to enter into a wedding. So we're entering into a pretend marriage with the possibility of a pretend divorce. Right? That's, that's kind of what we're setting up. It's the reason it's practiced, because we can walk away, right? So what we're going to practice is kind of pretending we're married. And what we're going to practice is, in a sense, divorcing if it doesn't work out. That's what I'm practicing now. So some problems with that, some obvious problems. What I just mentioned, I think the lab's too real. It's not really a lab. You're entering into something real that's costly, that's relational, that you're going to be invested in, and there's a pull to make it work even if it shouldn't. Um, second thing is, like I said, you have it with an escape plan. So the tendency is to think that we can enter into something that maybe we shouldn't enter into. Because i got an escape plan in my hand. And again, I just think, well, that's a scary thing to get good at kind of pretend divorces. If that's going to help you stay married, probably not the thing you want to get better at. Right? And being able to walk away whenever things get rough. The third problem with it is, um, what do you end up practicing in this lab? What are the primary skills you're getting better at when you do this? Because again, it's not the real thing, right? For some reason, you've chosen it not to be the real thing. So what are you actually practicing and getting better at in this, uh, in this relationship? And I'd argue that there are a couple of things that you're actually practicing and getting better at that are the very opposite of what you need for a healthy marriage. One of the things I think you're practicing is self-protection. You're going into it and you're practicing being someone who is making sure that nothing's going to harm me in any way. That I'm going to be completely taken care of and all my needs are going to be met. I'm practicing that. That's why I'm going into this lab, to make sure that that will be true. And I'd say, that's not necessarily the most important, I'm not saying all self-protection is wrong. Not really the most important skill for a healthy marriage. The other thing I think you're practicing is this hyper-focus on compatibility. Going into marriage, and, and, and what this kind of lab encourages you to do, to be looking and looking and looking for compatibility. And red flags are anything that says you're not compatible. When there's a difference there, when there's not sameness, when there's discomfort. Oop, this is probably not a good one, right? And this may be the reason to pull out the escape plan. And all I would say to you is, compatibility, easy thing in relationships. That's the easy part. You figure that out pretty quick where there's some compatibility. Hard part in marriage is how you are going to pursue oneness with this difference. That's the hard part. The, how you're going to pursue oneness with sameness, that's not that hard, people. You know? How I can get along with me, I do it pretty well. I can do it. <laughs> if you're like me, we get along pretty well. What do I do when I'm with you close enough and enough that I come to realize there are so many ways you're not all like me? You are other. You're a different person with a different way and different ways of thinking and different strengths and different weaknesses. Now how do I connect to you and love you and find a relationship with you and pursue oneness with you? That's the skill that's hard. That's the one that takes a lot of work to develop. That's the one that, in a sense, commitment kind of keeps you in there while you continue to grow and develop that skill. Walking in with your escape plan, it's really not what you're looking for. What you're looking for is compatibility. I'd say, honestly, I just don't think that's the thing that takes so much practice. I think you probably can find that a lot of other ways without doing all this. So I want to leave you with one passage of scripture. It's 
It's actually the passage in Scripture that, uh, if you go to the Scripture and look for any place that talks directly about marriage, specifically about marriage, this is the place in Scripture that it's second most does that. Number one is Song of Songs. It talks about marriage more than any other singular passage. Second is Ephesians chapter 5. So Ephesians chapter 5 kind of gets bad rap. Uh, it's, it's a passage, you know, it's the wives submit to your husbands and the blood of the so, uh, it, it kind of is a passage that people kind of sometimes react quickly to. And I understand that. To be honest, I think in the history of the church, that passage has been used for some pretty ugly things at times. So understand the reaction, but I actually think it's a beautiful passage that has a lot to say to us about marriage. And the reason I want to talk about this a minute with you, I want to think about what are some good things to practice. If you want to practice for a healthy marriage, if you want to prepare for that, if you have someone you're considering getting married to and you want to focus on something that would that would help you avoid that fear of divorce, the things to really practice, then I want to think through this a little bit. And, and then think with you about, what's a better reason to practice some of those things? I don't think cohabitation is. What is a better reason? So Ephesians 5, to, to think through it well, I think you have to, you have to think about it in context of the whole letter. So the letter of Ephesians, if you look at the first half of the letter of Ephesians, it's a letter where the first half really starts focusing on who are you in Christ? So in Christ you're chosen. In Christ you're loved. In Christ you're blessed. And Paul really focuses on those issues. This is who you are in Christ. In Christ you are one who has been chosen and blessed and loved for a purpose that you might bring glory to God. And, and the crescendo of kind of this letter is in, in Ephesians chapter 3, kind of right in the middle of the book where, where Paul prays for us. And Paul prays, God, I just wish that we get just how, how high and long and deep and wide is the love of God for them if we could just give that. If we could just understand who we are in Christ, that we've been chosen and loved and blessed, that we are loved in a way we can't even hardly begin to imagine. And all of this has been poured into us, that we might be creatures who bring glory to God. That's our incredible purpose that we are called to. So he sets that up in the first half. And then in the second half, he kind of says, and then here is how you live that out. Here's the way of love. Love has been poured into you. Here's the way of Christ. Here's the way of love, what it looks like to live that out. So you got to kind of understand that base. It's don't just go do these things. Do these things because you get this, who you are. Now, based on who you are, of course this makes sense to live this way. This is the way of Christ, the way of love. And then at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul kind of sums up what he's just said. As he kind of goes in these last two chapters, he starts summing up the points he's made. And in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Follow God's example, therefore. As dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So you are. You're loved. And as people have been loved and God's poured his love into, follow the example of Christ and live out that love for others and do so for the glory of God. Do so as a sacrifice to me. And then he goes on and says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual morality or of any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Because if this is the way of love, then of course this is a fit. Then using people, using people for your own benefit, of course that is not the way you're called to as people that this love has been poured into and chosen for this purpose. It just doesn't make sense to live that way. And then Paul goes on, and he, and he does what was common in Greek culture, uh, he, he's taught this moral principle, this way of living. 
And then he says, okay, now in your daily life, in your normal relationships, here's what it looks like to live this principle out. So he applies it to what's often called the household code, their normal relationships in their culture. It's husband and wife, and master and slave, and parent and child, especially father and child. And in this case, they're all relationships, and this is a pretty clear authoritarian culture, where the power is, resides in certain people. A whole lot in some, not so much in others. Power resides mostly in husbands, not in wives. Mostly in masters, not in slaves. Mostly in fathers, not in children. But even in that relationship, he's calling them to something that he's been kind of leading up to through this whole book. And here's the principle. Now, in your real-life relationships, go with this thing out. As he talks to husband and wife, he starts out with this beginning statement, chapter 22. Or, I'm sorry, not chapter 22. I mean, not verse 22. Uh, verse 21. He says, uh, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this is the setup before he goes into any of these examples. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then in verse 22, he starts applying it to husbands and wives. And he starts with wives. Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Husbands had a lot of power, so what's it tempting for a wife to do? Take care of herself. Protect herself. He's got all the power. The normal thing she's going to do is protect herself. We'll hear him later talking to slaves. What was normal for them to do? See what I can get away with. A little bit of passive-aggressive kind of hooking at the people in power. You know, because I don't have much power, but I still want to do what I can. Whatever power I have, I want to use it for me, if nothing else, to protect myself. That would be the norm. He says, no, don't do that. I want you to submit to these men in your life. He said it all as husbands and wives... Master, slave, uh, parent, child, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But here he comes back to wives that even in that position, in that subordinate position, still be going to submit. The word submit there, I'm told, is a word that's most often used in the Greek in military context. It's a word that has to do with the idea of like a, a lieutenant fighting the battle for his general. The idea is I'm fighting for his victory, not my battle. I'm joining in the battle that he might be victorious, that he might win that he might get the, the rewards of the victory. Submit. Be someone who fights for the best of the other, who brings out the best in the other. Later, Paul will, will use a word, another word that he treats as synonymous, treat him with respect, show respect towards him. He's saying, in a sense, lift him up, bring the best out of him, fight for his best in the way you relate to him. Let's say to husbands, these people who have the power. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Uh, a little side note, I'll hear a lot of times people say, well, wives are the ones told to submit. I never have heard anyone argue once that husbands are the only ones who are supposed to love. I've, I've never heard that. <laughs> but they're the only ones told her to do that. Uh, I think Paul's speaking into that culture, and I don't think he's necessarily affirming the system. Uh, we can have other arguments about that, but in this case, I think what Paul is doing is simply speaking to the system that existed. And within that system, whatever position you hold, consider the others. Live in such a way instead of taking care of you, take care of the other. And just like husbands, from this position of power, it could be all about serving your needs. No. Like Christ, love your wife. Love your wife in such a way she is more beautiful, more radiant, more holy. Bring out the very best in her. Serve her best. Don't serve you. 
through her. Use your opportunity to sacrifice the power you have to bring the very best for her in a sense to bring her victory. That's how you do it. A little later says, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Your goal is to love her as she is you. Your goal is to, to find an us way, not a her way and your way. It's to find an us, to fight for an us, to treat her as your, your very own body, just as Christ does the church. As Christ does for us, where we are in him, and he is in us. Treat your wife that way. Be one who loves her with that kind of pursuit of oneness and unity. And he goes on and he gives an example from Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Sacrificially love the other. Think about the other ahead of yourself. Be one who pursues oneness. Leave mother and father. So that even in this physical way, you are reflecting this oneness that you are internally meant to be pursuing. Be those who pursue oneness just as Christ does with his church. <coughs> what are we practicing if you want to get good at marriage? You want to get ready for it? Yeah, I don't think you need to be focusing all the time on compatibility. Instead, what you're looking for, how is two very different people? As two very different people, can we find ways to say, I'm going to value and embrace those things that are different. I'm talking about sin. I'm not talking about just differences. I'm going to embrace them. I want to find ways that those things can have an effect upon me and shape me and how my differences can shape her. So that somehow together we are more together than we are apart. Somehow when we come together in oneness, we are a better reflection of God's glory than we are as individuals. That's what I want to be pursuing. Figuring out how to be a person whose difference doesn't have to be threatening to me. Difference can be something I actually celebrate and I embrace and I bring the very best out of the other person. Well, you do that, you know, raised a son and a daughter who are now both married. And I gotta tell you, someone came to me and said to me, you know, I'm not sure I want to marry your daughter, but you know when I'm with her, my goal is just to understand her, how she's who she is, who she's made to be, and to just encourage the best in her. That's my goal. I'm like, hang out with my daughter all you want. To. <laughs> all the time you want with her. I don't want you using her. I don't want you using her just to make your life better. I don't care if she makes you like better, that's nice. But I care even more that you're going to bring the best out of her. That she's going to be a more radiant, beautiful woman because of your interaction with her. Please, do all that that you possibly can. You don't have to live together and practice that. You can practice that without doing it. So, I don't think compatibility is always a big deal. I think learning um, to bring the best out of the other, to understand the differences and even celebrate them are more important than I don't think self-protection is the most important thing to practice. I think learning to sacrifice for the sake of the other is the more important thing that we need to practice. And that takes time. The hard thing, honestly, is commitment. When I sit with a couple and I'm talking with them about whether they're getting ready to be married, I care about compatibility. I mean, it's silly to say it doesn't matter. Of course it matters. It's really not the most important thing to me. Part because I know when you guys spend a lot more time together, and I don't care if you live together, you spend more time together over years, you're going to find a whole lot of ways you're not compatible. I don't care what you do, you're going to find them. They're there. You're going to find differences you're not going to like. You're going to find things that just flat irritate you. They will be there eventually. I know that. I'm not looking at compatibility to be the number one thing. 
when I'm looking at it, I'm counting the cost. Are you ready to make a commitment to this other person? A commitment that will cost you. A commitment that to be in it, you're going to have to make sacrifices for the sake of that person. And do you care enough about them that you want to sacrifice for them? you care? Are you ready to commit to that? Have you thought about that? Well, please do. And I know you're really not. I know when you enter into it, you're not ready to do it. But I want to know that you have at least given it the thought you can. You prepare the best you can for it. You understand the commitment that you're making. And absolutely, please enter into it. And the commitment becomes the thing that helps you to grow while you're in the process. Helps both of you to grow. The commitment's not something that's kind of a little benefit to tap on later. The commitment is the base that helps the other good stuff happen in a marriage. I'll end with these two quotes. Mike Mason, from his book, The Mystery of Marriage, wrote this. Love aims at revelation, at a clarifying defining of our true natures. It is sort of a sharpening process, a paring away of all the lifeless exteriors, so that the keen new edge of a person's true self can begin to flash and flame in the light of day. That's what we do. We live with each other in a way that clarifies, that brings out the mess, that sharpens. Dan Allen and Trumper Alonzo, the book in the Allies, wrote this. We're called to cultivate Christ and others by selling words of life on the ground we have worked, guided by a vision of what is and what could be. In my marriage, I must see my spouse as the first and primary person that I am to labor to create and shape. As well, I must open my heart to be the palate of my spouse. She is to envision and paint on my soul the being that I am to become. I want you to end a marriage where honestly you're challenged, you have to struggle, you have to fight sometimes, you have to walk through hard things, because that will produce better marriages. And learning to be good at escaping when it gets hard, not the stuff you need to produce a good marriage. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the people here. I thank you for the fact that they're here, uh, I'm sure, because they care about the relationship with you, because they care about walking in the way of love, the way of Christ. But Father, it's hard for all of us. And it is a challenge. And I just pray that you would give us the support of one another. You would help us to know how to come alongside each other and encourage each other on that way. But Father, I pray mostly that your spirit would guide us and strengthen us and encourage us as we, as we walk, sometimes in a culture that is um, tempting us uh, in so many ways to walk away from the way. And we bless the name. Amen.